Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Calm us now, O Lord, into quietness that heals and listens. Open wounded hearts to the balm of your word. Speak to us in clear tones so that we might feel our spirits leap for joy and skip with hope as your resurrection witnesses. Scripture reading this morning is Galatians 3, chapter, I mean, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the, the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those of you who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteousness will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing be given to Abraham might, might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Allison. The, um, we're glad you're here. Uh, welcome again. If you're new or visiting, my name is Chris. I serve as the pastor here. Uh, we've spent the past, um, gosh, almost six months, I was realizing, in some kind of niche, very specific areas of Scripture. So this summer, we, we spent almost two months, a little bit more than two months, actually, looking at just the first three chapters of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And, and we asked kind of how do these first three pages of our Bible really lay the groundwork for our faith in Jesus. And then this fall, we've been asking, how does my faith affect my work? And how do I express my faith in and through my work? And those are all really important topics, but they're, they're kind of very, very, very specific in some ways. They're good topics to address, but sometimes it's also important to just kind of come up for air and to remind ourselves, what are the basic essentials of the Christian faith? And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to ask, we're not going to ask a really specific or niche question. We're simply going to ask ourselves and remind ourselves this morning, what is the heart of the good news of Jesus the Christ? And you can find, I mean, one of the best explanations right here in Galatians 3. 
Now, Allison read a bigger chunk, but we're really going to zero in on this little bit in the middle, and I want to read it again for you, just so that it kind of gets stuck in our mind. And even as I read these just four verses, listen for what words and themes keep coming up. What does Paul want us to remember, even just through his repetition? Here's what he writes. Everyone who relies on observing the law is under a curse. Because it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything that is written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous shall live by faith. The law is not based on faith. Quite the opposite. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Do you hear the topics of the law and faith of the curse and the law or the curse of the law coming up over and over? That's what we're going to spend some time looking at this morning. And in order to understand where Paul is going, we have to understand the situation he's writing into. This is probably one of the first letters, if not the first letter, that Paul wrote, at least the ones that we still have. And Paul is writing this letter to a group of early, early Christians, probably about 50 to 55 A.D., who are struggling through some fundamental questions of the Christian faith. And the Christian faith was going through a lot of transition early on. You have to remember, first and foremost, this really matters. Jesus, remember, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was not a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Jesus was a Middle Eastern, dark-skinned Jew. And pretty much all of Jesus' first followers were Jews. And before long, the message began to spread, and people who were not Jews, the Bible calls them Gentiles, began to follow Jesus and began to walk in the way of Jesus as well. And the early Christian leaders, at this time, remember, pretty much all Jews, had to wrestle through the question, to what extent do we make these people who are not Jewish look and act like they are Jews in order to join the church? That's really the question that they're wrestling through. And the key way they wanted, there was this tendency that they wanted non-Jews to look and act Jewish. And the main way they wanted them to do this was by following Jewish law, what today we would call the Old Testament. It's into that setting that Paul writes this letter, and his basic idea is this. If you rely on the law, you're under a curse. You're under a curse. Now, just very briefly, let's talk about what a curse actually is. A curse is just a a word or words or a phrase that somebody says that's designed in some way to rob you of life. That's all it is. It's designed to take life, to deprive you of your life. It's the opposite of a blessing. A blessing is just a word or words or a phrase or a sentence or a prayer, whatever, that's designed to give you life, that's meant to fill you up. So a blessing gives life, a curse takes life. And so Paul says everybody who tries to to get right with God somehow by following the law by following all the commands in the Old Testament, is under a curse. What's he saying? He's saying, it will kill you. It will kill you. There are people 
who live by the law. There were people who lived in Jesus' day and in Paul's day who lived by the law. There are still people today who live by the law. The exact expression of the law might look a little bit different, but the heart behind it is really no different. There are people who think the goal of life and especially 20th century, maybe not so much 21st century as we're becoming even more postmodern, but especially 20th century American Christianity. How many people could you ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? They would have said, well, it means to be a good person, to be moral, to behave. Just be a good person and you'll get into heaven. How often have we heard that? How often have we believed that? If I can just be a good person, I can get into heaven. That's the law. And in verse 10, Paul says, everyone who relies on observing the law is under a curse. Why? He's going to explain this to us. Because, and now he's, quote, he's actually quoting from the law to condemn the law itself. He's using the law against itself. He quotes from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Why? Because cursed is everyone, two important words here, first important word, everyone. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do, second important work, word, everything, everything written in the book of the law. Now, this is a stunning, broad, severe statement that Paul is making. And he knows that if you're going to make a stunning, broad, and severe statement, you don't make it yourself. You, you just say, well, somebody else said it. And so he says, well, this is actually in the law itself. This is, due to, this is the law. And what does the law itself teach us in Deuteronomy 27? What does God teach us about his own law? Let's put it in 21st century language. What is God teaching us? That when it comes to obeying the law, God does not grade on a curve. When it comes to obeying the law, God does not grade on a curve. God grades on a, God's grading scale is a pass-fail scale. And at this point, most of us are like, oh, whew, thank God. Until you realize, what is God's scale? Because if it's true that cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything, not just most things, but everything that is written in the book of the law, what is God's scale? If you score 100, you pass. And if you score a 99.5 or less, you fail. That's what that means. And you can get upset about it and say, I don't like it, but your problem is with the law itself. It's with Deuteronomy 27. In fact, Jesus' own brother, James, picks up on this. And in his, he writes a little letter called, well, James. In James 2, James writes the same thing. He says, whoever, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, James says, is guilty of breaking all of it. The image you get is a glass of pure water. Imagine you have a glass of just perfect, pure spring water. And then you take a little eyedropper, a little micropipette, and you just drop, I mean, the tiniest little drop of cyanide into the water. You're going to drink that glass of water? It's just, it's just a drop, right? Now, some of you are scientists, and you're like, well, how small is the drop? Because maybe. But <laughs> that's not the point. <laughs> The point is, even just a little drop of cyanide will poison the whole glass. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And we think, well, that doesn't sound very fair. Why would God be so severe? 
That's a really good question, by the way. You should ask that question. Let's dig into that a little bit. Why would God be so severe? Why would he be so severe? The short answer is this, because he is just. And whether you realize it or not, you want God to be a just God. You want him to be just. And I will prove it to you. The way we prove this is by imagining a God who isn't just. Imagine a God who's not just. Imagine a God who does not hold war criminals to account. Imagine a God who does not hold abusers to account. Imagine a God who says, yeah, okay, that's bad, but I'm merciful. I'm, I'm a God of mercy. So let's just, let's just pretend like it never happened. You, would, you should want nothing to do with that kind of God. Rightfully so. Why? Because you actually want God to be just. We all do. That makes sense, by the way. Let's go back to Genesis 1 for about 10 seconds. We're made in God's image. And if God is just, then there is a seed of justice in us that longs for God to be just, to hold the wicked to account. You think, I want God to be just, but I'm not wicked. I'm not a war criminal, right? Any war criminals in here? I'm not an, I'm not an abuser, So God should judge those people, but not me. That's basically what we think, right? Here's the problem with that. It's the same problem, by the way. A recent study found that 75% of Americans think they're an above-average driver. You know, like the law of averages, like, right? Why is it that every one of us thinks that we're above average? Any, will anybody admit to being a below average? That's what I want to know. Like, probably the other 25% say they're average. Why is it that every single one of us assumes that the bar is below us? See, we, I want a God who is just, yes. I want a God who judges war criminals and abusers and the worst of the worst. I want a God who judges the big sins. But I don't really, if I'm, let's be honest, I don't want a God who judges the little sins. I want you to judge the abusers. I don't want you to judge when I hold a grudge against somebody and refuse to forgive them. I want a God who judges a genocidal despot, of course. I don't want a God who will judge me when I start treating people impatiently and harshly because they've inconvenienced me. I want a God who is just, but just just enough to judge everybody who's worse than me. Right? We want God to draw the line just below us really anywhere below us, as long as it's somewhere below us, right? But that wouldn't be just, would it? A truly just God, just by, definition, by the definition of justice, a just God has to judge all sin, which is how James can say, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking the whole thing. which is how in Deuteronomy, God himself can say, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything. Not most things, not a majority, not a simple majority, 51% or better, everything written in the book of the law. 
Now, there are some people, especially, again, now we're getting into the 21st century and we're a little more postmodern, and certainly culture, especially in New England, is much more secular, and a lot of people think, well, we're, we're kind of beyond that. We're more sophisticated than that. That's kind of a backwards understanding. We're, yeah, we, we, we've progressed. And, and aside from the fact that that's just a, a basic historic and genetic fallacy, um, the secular world actually believes this too. It doesn't have to be just religious. In fact, we can, let's just explore this briefly to show how really all of us somehow buy into this. There's something about this that's planted in the human heart. And we can do this by looking to the religion of most of the secular world today, which is politics. I want to show you how we actually all believe this and how both the right and the left believe this. So I'm going to knock on Republicans and Democrats, and you're all going to be angry at me by the end of this sermon. Sound good? Enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? On the left, when's the last time you've heard of a pro-life Democrat? When's the last time you've heard of a progressive who believes that gender is received and is not something that we all get to choose for ourselves? When's the last time you heard of a liberal who buys into trickle-down economics? You haven't, have you? And maybe if you have, it was somebody who's kind of portrayed as being this, this weird, wacky. Why? Because if you identify as a Democrat and then you step out of line with the party line, you get crucified. In order to be one of us, they say, you have to believe every single thing we believe and you may not deviate from the party line or you get canceled. Republicans are no different. The issues are different, but the end result is no different and the heart behind it is actually no different. Imagine a Republican who publicly advocated for critical race theory. Can you, like, we can't even... Like, can't even imagine what that would look like, right? Imagine a conservative who wanted to open the country to just completely free and open immigration. You can't imagine it, right? Why? Because if you are going to be a good right-wing Republican, you need to get in step with the entire party line. The point is not to say which of these policies is right or wrong. You're missing the point if that's what you get hung up on. The point is to say on both the left and the right, there is this understanding that if you are not with us completely, then we are against you. What are they basically saying? Cursed is everyone who does not do everything that is written in our book of law. If you don't get in line with every jot and tittle of the party platform, then you get crushed and canceled. If you misspeak, get this, if you misspeak even just once, if you tweeted something the wrong thing eight years ago, then the 24 cable news cycle and the Twitterverse or the Xverse or whatever it's called now, I don't know, draws and quarters you. Why? Because you broke the law. Do you see? Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything that's written in the book of law. Whether we realize it or not, in some measure, this is baked into who we are. We just don't want it to be true of us. But when you rely on your adherence to the law, Paul says, when you rely on your obedience, when you rely on your morality, when you rely on just being a good person and hoping you're a good enough person, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying you are placing yourself under a curse. It will kill you. 
because nobody gets it right 100% of the time. And as soon as you misstep, the law will crush you. I was talking with someone about, he brought it up, not even me, but just a couple weeks ago, and he's been reading through the Old Testament. And he said, I'm going to paraphrase here, but I think this is right. He said, I'm beginning to think that the whole point of the Old Testament is to convince us that nobody can follow all these rules. (laughs) I said, like, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. It's just not possible. It will kill you. So the obvious next question is, well, where do we find life then? Where do we find life? Paul gives us the antidote to that poison. It's right here in verse 11. He says, clearly no one is justified before God. Justified just means made right. No one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. He says the opposite of the law is faith. And there's a little trouble with the word faith here. We hear the word faith and we assume it's just something kind of intellectual, something you believe, but that doesn't really have any teeth. That's not what the biblical authors mean by faith. And actually, Paul, Paul shows us what he means by faith in this section when he talks about Abraham. He says Abraham was justified by faith. Let's just remind ourselves real quickly, who is Abraham? Very first time we meet Abraham in the Bible, you've got to go way back to page 12 of your Bible, Genesis 12. Abraham is a wealthy, distinguished pagan, He lives in a land called Ur back then, which is modern-day Iraq, probably right near Kuwait, so eastern Iraq. He does not follow Yahweh. He's probably never heard of the God of the Bible. He's about 75 years old. 75 years old. And God says, Abraham, pack your bags and go somewhere where, well, I'll show you later. You notice that, by the way? Like, this is one of my favorite parts. God never actually says, Abraham, pack your bags and go to the promised land. God says, Abraham, pack your bags and just go. And I'll show you where you're going when you get there. Start walking. And Genesis 12, verse 4 starts this way. So Abraham went. Three simple words that betray an incredible faith. That's not just head, like, intellectual, cognitive, ascent faith. That's not just some thin, shallow, like, oh, yeah, I believe. No, it's maybe a better word for it is trust. And this is, this is getting into, like, differences in English semantics, okay? So don't take this as gospel, but when I think of trust, I think of, like, faith that actually does something. Abraham is 75 years old, He packs up everything he owns and goes on a thousand-mile journey by foot from eastern Iraq through Saudi Arabia and then Jordan and then Israel and to modern-day Egypt. A thousand miles by foot. In the Bible, faith is not just like, oh yeah, I believe the right thing, but I do whatever I want. No, it's I'm so convinced by something that the whole trajectory of my life changes. It's both and. Abraham trusted God and it was credited to, excuse me, to him as righteousness. The righteous shall live by, well, Paul says faith, but the same, the same Greek word can be translated as trust. The righteous shall live by trust. Trust in what? I'm so, thank, I'm so glad you asked. Thanks for asking. Let me tell you. 
Remember, Paul is writing to early Christians, and they're struggling to figure out, like, what's, what is the heartbeat of our faith all about? Do you have to follow all of these laws in order to be a Christian? And Paul says, no. Emphatically, no. It's all about Jesus. If you try to live by the law, you will put yourself under a curse. But, and then he goes to verse 13, and do not miss this. He says, but Christ... Jesus, the Christ, redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? And he tells us, by becoming a curse for us. By becoming a curse for us. Remember that test where you have to score 100 to pass and God doesn't grade on a curve? And none of us scores 100. Here's the good news. Jesus scored 100. That's the first part. That's not the whole good news, but that's the first part of it. Jesus scored 100. Here's the rest of the good news. And then he takes his sheet to you with the 100 in red ink on the top. And he says, how about we scratch out my name at the top and put your name at the top? And I can't create, you can't take credit for two tests. So we'll scratch out my name and put your name, and then we'll scratch out your name on the top of your 82, and we'll put my name at the top of your 82. And all of a sudden, the test that has 100 on it has your name on the top. By the way, do you see why this is so important to remember that Jesus never sinned? Because if Jesus scored a 99 instead of 100, it does no good. He has to have scored 100 in order for this to work. He has to have scored 100 in order to become the curse because if he, you can't become the curse if you're already under the curse. Jesus comes to you and he says, how about we scratch, how about we swap names at the top of the test? And he gives you a choice. He says, do you do it or not? There's the crossroads that we find ourselves at. Do you do it or not? It's an interesting question, by the way, because a lot of us choose, I believe, there are people in this room who choose no choose no I remember talking to somebody this is is years ago and he said when my time comes and I'm standing before God I just want to be able to say I worked really hard for you and my heart sank I just I just felt pity why because what's he doing he's trying to justify himself by works of the law look how hard I worked for you God There are so many of us who say, no thanks, I'll take the test myself. I don't want to be indebted to somebody else. And in their pride, they subject themselves to the curse of the law, which leads to death. And by the way, this is very important, God does not curse us. We put ourselves under the curse. He gives us a way out, but we get to choose if we put ourselves under the curse or not. God does not curse us. We put ourselves under when we choose to refuse his blessing. You have the choice. Do you choose for God to judge you by your works or by the work of Christ? If you choose for God to judge you by your work, then you have to ask yourself this question. This is a hard question. You have to ask yourself, what if my work isn't good enough? 
I'm pretty sure the line is below me, but what if the line is actually above me? What if God is not impressed by my work? And if you choose for God to judge you by your works, I hope you ask that question. And, and in all love, I hope it haunts you. I hope you lose sleep over that question. Not because I, want, I wish ill for you, but because I, I wish the best for you. I want you, to, I want you to live. And I hope that that haunting question drives you to realize that you have no hope other than Jesus, who took your sin, who became your sin, so that you could become his life. Why would he do that? <laughs> love. It's really simple. Love. Every good parent longs to take, when they see their kid hurt, every good parent wishes they could take their kid's hurt on themselves, right? Every parent longs for that. I wish I could take their place. That's exactly what Jesus did because of love. Martin Luther, who's never one to underestimate or understate anything, he once wrote this, and I'm paraphrasing this. I had to read this a couple times, um, and it really is as strong as it sounds. Here's what he, he writes. Jesus Christ was, at, at the cross, Jesus Christ was the greatest sinner that ever lived. This is in his commentary on, on this text in Galatians. At the cross, Jesus Christ was the greatest sinner who ever lived. You see where he's going? All the sins of humans were so laid on Christ that he became all the thieves and the murderers and the adulterers that ever were all in one person. That's what Paul means in Galatians 3 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. Or elsewhere in, in 2 Corinthians 5, he puts it this way. Same thing, different words. He says, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, remember he knew no sin, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We cannot do it for ourselves. We cannot do it on our own. And it's completely backwards math. In human math, like when you add two things together, you get more. And in God's math, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. In God's math, Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. And Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The verse immediately preceding our reading, Allison didn't read it this morning, puts it this way. We'll think about this, this one last way as we wrap up. Paul says, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. You see what he's saying? He's saying that when you try to work your way into heaven, when you try to just be a good enough person to get into heaven, whether you realize it or not, what you're telling Jesus is your death was in vain. But Jesus' death was not in vain. And the scandal of the gospel, the scandal of trust as the antidote to the curse of the law, is that we are fully accepted in Christ despite our missteps. God knows your sin. 
He knows all of those below the bar things that you've done that you hope he never finds out about and he still loved you and gave himself for you. The good news is that only God can forgive and God forgives. And so you have a choice. We all have a choice. We can rely on our own obedience to that. We can just try to be a good enough person. And you can keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and it will kill you. You're under a curse. Or you can rely on Christ who became the curse for you. In which case you become fully justified, fully right with God. You get that hundred in red ink and a gold star right next to it. Friends, brothers, sisters, choose Christ whether it's the first time in your life that you've ever chosen Christ or whether it's the thousandth time in your life that you've ever chosen Christ, choose Christ. Amen.